0: Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, gib unsusas, sonst gib sauras. I'm Nick Out of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my spooky co-host, Simon Monstertans-Maddox. How are you doing, Simon? Yeah, doing the mash.
1: Following on from last <laughs> week's smash. Look at it, linking together like beautiful pieces of... Of of handcrafted mahogany. Look at that.
0: Wow, I wouldn't have described the podcast as handcrafted mahogany, but I like it. It's not in the script. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not. Yeah, uh, so we're recording on the Wednesday after Halloween, but yesterday uh, we had a really nice interview with the freelance journalist William Noah Glucroft, who's based in Berlin. Some of you might know William from Twitter, uh, and some of his articles that have been in, in various different publications. But um, if you don't know him, you should uh, check out his Substack, which is schland.substack.com. Uh, there's always some really interesting stuff on politics and sort of German culture. Um, and in fact, that's exactly what we talk about this week uh, with him. We discuss a little bit about politics, about the bits of culture that he enjoys, and of course, his favorite beer, so look out for that uh, after we've uh, talked a little bit about what we've been doing this week. Simon what have you been up to?
1: Yeah, not not a huge man, pretty quiet week, although we did uh, the wife and I decided with Halloween uh, being happening all around us, we did actually see some kids in fancy dress on our street, which we mm. didn't see last year, so the americanization of the suburbs of Nuremberg <laughs> is in full swing. <laughs> um, but we decided we'd watch a horror film. And my wife's not really much of a film watcher, never mind a horror film watcher. Uh, so I dug through my newly collected DVDs from the UK and gave us some options, uh, including Seven, which I thought was probably too too tough. So there was some pretty brutal stuff in there. And oh, I can't remember the other ones now, but we landed on Son of Sam, which is a, a Spike Lee joint uh, yeah. with Adrian Brody. Have you seen it?
0: I haven't. I know, obviously, I know it's it's quite a meaty venture for sure.
1: I mean, to be honest, I, I remember enjoying the film because Adrian Brody plays a guy who sort of is an Italian American in a very Italian American neighbourhood, and he falls mm-hmm. in love with punk, and he turns back up with like spiked hair and wearing a Union Jack top, and his people reject him, like his old friends, because he's now punk and he's talking in a British accent, and he loves the Who. And I guess I kind of connected with that being a a, a punk and a former Mohawk wearer myself. Um, <laughs> so I remember enjoying the film and I hadn't watched it for like since 2010 at least. And yeah, my memory had faded quite dramatically because what it turns out is basically just loads of sex scenes as though like way, <laughs> way more sex scenes than I, than any kind of like horror film requires. And the, the really weird things about it for a film that had at least I guess seven sex scenes. The only person who you actually saw topless was his mum, um, which was sort of quite a weird choice, I thought, from Spike Lee. Yeah, so that was the horror film. And at the end, I was like, sorry, darling, that was pretty much, I was much closer to porn than horror than I remember it being. And she was like, yeah, it wasn't very scary. I was like,
0: okay, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, but we all have the horn now, so it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, I watched a couple of horror films, and I—I I mean, we've watched horror films before. I'm not very good with horror films at all. They've really messed me up. Um, I can't stop thinking about. It. I watched that The Lodge with—I think it's uh, it's a Kirsten Stewart. I think it is. He's in okay. that? That's a pretty messed up. Have you seen um, Midsummer? No. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. This is like this is some. Yeah, it's pretty horrific, but it's about a Swedish cult. A Swedish pagan cult and a group of Americans go to see this cult and it's basically what what happens in it's a bit like it's a bit like wicker man but with there's something else to it it's very weird it's very odd it's interesting because when you put it into google
1: the first um, people also ask suggestion is what is the point of the movie midsummer <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean I can't really tell you what the point of it was all I know is I felt definitely a little bit disturbed and uh the other thing that i would offer you is a a film that i've been replaying in my mind since i watched it i think on uh sunday evening so the film's called hereditary yeah that's messed up it's like i can't explain that film to you It's, it's one of those films that doesn't tell you anything about why all this horrible shit is happening and it just happens and it's horrific on like lots of different scales it doesn't get really horrible until about the last 10 minutes but yeah i watched that and uh, yeah i haven't been able to stop thinking about it so i've had some pretty
1: meaty nightmares apparently there's a thing um, there's a website called gigacalculator.com mm-hmm. and they have confirmed according to this article that hereditary is scientifically speaking the scariest film of all time
0: it's it's pretty messed up i'll say that it's got it's got it's good but it's got all the elements i like in a horror film it's got uh slow burn but it's also horrific and it's very like there's a lot of it you're like that could happen yep that could totally happen and a bit of a cult cultiness as well ah it's it's worth it it's worth it if you like a, a scare i'd watch it but definitely watch it, as I did, sort of in parts. I sort of paused it and walked away, (laughs) (laughs) came back to it later. But yeah, I I did have to watch some horror films, though, because I did something else slightly odd at the weekend. Uh, I took uh, my daughter, and obviously my wife came as well. I guess my wife took me and I took my daughter (laughs) to the Schöngauer uh, Merchenwald, und park which is a very curious theme park i guess is probably overselling it but it's essentially uh, a lot of little huts with um fairy tales so all the yeah, traditional fairy tales and a load of ones i'd never heard before this one was called the seven ravens didn't really understand it but what made this so good was it's something that germany does really well like britain does slick slick entertainment very well Germany does like homemade we we did this in 20 minutes kind of entertainment quite well and it is basically a series of huts that look very well decorated and carefully made that are filled with store mannequins dressed as like Snow White (laughs) or um, as the witch from Hansel and Gretel and and all and then the best part about it is you press a button and it tells you the story, like the full story. So you're there for about five minutes, but it's all in Byrish. It's like properly. But I was like listening to it going, I don't understand any of these words. <laughs> like I got, hmm, I don't know what that is, but I know it's a witch because there's like some cackling. Uh, that's about it. And it was, it's quite a surreal experience, uh, but it does come with um, schnitzel and pommes. So, ah. oh, and beer. You could get a beer at the bar. So that was quite nice. So. That was what I did at the weekend, and I'm not entirely sure Like that was the best balance between sort of child's activity and apparently the scariest horror film of all time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you've gone to both ends of the spectrum, so congratulations on that successful
0: De- definitely. weekend. Definitely. I had, yeah. had a little train as well, but I wasn't allowed to go on it because it was obviously going to derail if I sat on it. There, there was, uh, what else was there? There was some some very, just... just you would look around and you'd see a store dummy dressed as a fairy sitting in a tree and it was like oh, okay <laughs> that's a bit it's a bit weird this is all a bit weird and like i said it just it was very homemade um if you look at the pictures of it you get a sense of exactly how homemade it is but i think next time i go back i'm definitely going to have a have a bash on the uh, on the little train i felt like i was i was missing out i i'm looking
1: at a picture of the model train with a load of adults on it uh, about an article <laughs> where they're uh, uh, no guests, no money, and um, fighting for its survival. And there's a guy at the back who's wearing, he's got a handsome beard, glasses, <laughs> dungarees, and no t shirt. Um, so if he's allowed on, I think you are.
0: <laughs> no, I didn't realize. I felt like I might damage it. Now I'm looking at that picture and I'm like, yep, yeah, probably could do that. Um, hey, well, it was it's definitely recovered. I'm assuming that's from the. Uh, perhaps the uh, pandemic, but it's definitely Mm. recovered. There was loads of people. And it did give me a full appreciation for how much I dislike other people's children. Um, (laughs) I think it's always good to be reminded that your children are wonderful and everyone else's children are the worst. Um, Um, but then I think you'd probably understand that, Simon, better than most. Yeah, I I just like like my cats.
1: Little things with grubby hands. Nah, I'm good, thanks. There was a lot of grubby hands. There's a lot of jam everywhere. We've had a few (laughs) children visitors this month, well, last month, and all were very well behaved, and it rejuvenated my, my optimism for the future of the youth of tomorrow.
0: don't go here then that definitely won't people skipping (laughs) lines parents just ignoring them they're all full of sugar and and fairy tales who can blame them i left my phone in the car because i'm concerned about being the dad who goes to things and stares at his phone Mm -hmm. and then i turned up and like every dad was standing around at a slight distance from their children and their wives or partners just staring into their phones and i was just like oh god that's 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 us isn't it that's 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 what i could be just <laughs> disinterested parents
1: so i managed to avoid that with the only active parents you and the single fathers who had their kids
0: for the weekend only <laughs> yeah who's who's who've taken their children to these to, to this thing out of pure guilt um, yeah i did definitely had a thousand yard stare but i wasn't staring into my phone <laughs> <laughs> This week, I'm joined by uh, William Noah Glucroft, a freelance journalist with a focus on German politics, and he's based, of course, in Berlin. How are you doing, William?
2: I'm doing very well on our newly clock-changed dark wintry afternoon no matter how many years i live here i will never get used to just how quickly it gets dark as soon as the clocks change it's you, you're ready for bed uh, and then you look at your watch you realize it's 6 p.m it's- yeah
0: <laughs> i'll be honest it's fixed my sleeping pattern because i was not sleeping right and then i gained obviously like a, a two hour sort of window uh, on sunday and then i was it an hour window sorry there's an hour we, the, the clocks went back isn't
2: it? usually like, it's an days. hour yeah
0: yeah yeah it felt like two hours i'll be honest so i got my first like seven and a half hours sleep that i've had in about two years
2: congratulations
0: yeah i was I was celebrating uh by having a nap um <laughs> <laughs> best way to celebrate but then i went to work on monday and i i, I walked back and i've been walking back in the evening sunshine and it was dark and depressing and yeah, it's all sort of become winter instantaneously. Then we had Halloween, and then there's just loads of kids doing trickle-treating
2: around. Oh, yeah. It was it was great. There was – actually, it was quite foggy on Halloween yeah. and felt very um, – had, had a nice Halloween spooky feeling, and the kids were out. I kind of felt like I was in that scene from E.T., <laughs> where all the kids are out kind of in the late afternoon, early evening. I, yeah, I, I yeah. Felt like a, it felt very uh, surreal, actually. I was – out meeting some friends and just kids in masks and makeup. I thought it was great. I love Halloween. It's a I understand it's kind of an export of American cultural hegemony. It's a little bit weird that it it takes place here in Berlin. But uh, that aside, I I, I think it's a great holiday.
0: Was there a lot of people out in in Yeah,
2: there was a good amount of people. I mean, I live right in the middle of the city. It's, of course, a lot of young families Mm. and a lot of, you know, Anglo and American influence, a lot of English speakers who live around here. So there's obviously a lot of Halloween kind of influence, um, a lot of mixed families, German-Americans, these kinds of things, So and just how it's seeped into German culture at least Berlin, urban, you kind know, of cosmopolitan culture, people want to go out, and and why not? I mean, it's an excuse for kids to eat candy and adults to drink, and everyone dresses up. So who can complain about this?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you say Berlin, but there's a fair few trick or treaters out in my little patch of Bavarian suburbia. All right, of course, though um, there was the obligatory Süddeutsche Zeitung article about. <laughs> the negative aspect of bringing in Halloween and how all our Bavarian traditions are are being maligned for these horrible American imports.
2: Well, if your local, you know, centuries old traditions can't stand up to a little bit of candy (laughs) and trick or treating, (laughs) that might say more about the local traditions than the, than the import. All I'm saying.
0: I had this conversation about why, because I'm posted something stupid on Twitter, and I got a lot of people saying, oh, well, the problem with Halloween is it takes away from St. Martin's Day, which I think is the 11th of November.
2: Oh, yes. When I first came to Germany, yeah. and uh, you know, Germany has holidays, has Christian holidays that I've I've never, you, you just don't know about outside of Germany. They have mm. just this long list of holidays you never know. Reformationstag, of course, is also on Halloween, mm-hmm. I believe.
0: <laughs> and I yeah. would
2: see shortly after, when I knew nothing about Germany, I was brand new here, and, and around Halloween, you would see kids, with lanterns going around the city. And I would think, Hey kids, you're a little late. <laughs> I would think they were doing something Halloween related. Cause I, I just, I knew nothing at that time, years ago. <laughs> um, and of course then I learned about St. Machin's day and all of that. One of the, one of the many kind of local German Protestant-ish traditions.
0: It's one of those things, that, like so many different celebrations, like the Christkind's a good example. Well, oh, yes. Christkind was originally, uh, this is my like party trick fact, is the Christkind was originally invented by Martin Luther, but it was adopted by the Catholics. <laughs> and I think uh, for some of the sort of Catholic holidays, especially things where you're making stuff and, and going out, I think... A lot of Protestant states have gone,
2: ah, oh, we'll keep those, you know, they're quite fun. Well, yeah. Everyone wants to pick and choose the best of, right? Of course. Yeah, exactly. It's why atheists celebrate Christmas, right? I mean, again, an excuse to drink, wear silly sweaters and give each other gifts. What can you complain about yeah. no matter what, uh, you know, walk of life you come from? I was having this discussion
0: with my wife because she used to celebrate, was it Saint Martin Tag? Yeah. Um, and uh, she was saying that in her village, all the kids in the, uh, the kindergarten would get together and they'd make lanterns and they'd do a procession. And then some local who had a horse would come up and he'd be dressed as St. Martin and they'd reenact the story of St. Martin and him dividing his cloak up and I can't remember what it's it's sort of it's vaguely St. Nicholas (laughs) I think there's a crossover between St. Martin and St. Nicholas but she was saying oh well you know like it's a shame that Halloween is taken over and I was like well exactly what you said it's not a robust tradition if it can't handle Halloween, but also that Halloween, of course, is going to be popular because it's essentially secular and you give out sweets and there isn't any Catholic guilt to go with it.
2: American culture is pretty subversive like that. They know how to export, you know, hey, kids, have some candy, you know, base everything on sort of sweets and money and uh, you're going to get people to to sign up to those things. You know, American cultural money knows what it's doing.
0: I love that American culture has that ability to just sort of seep into different countries and sort of influence certain things and whether it's food or whether it's like well, like veganism is a good example. Like people talk about it coming from Berlin and I'm like, no, nah, it's like California. <laughs> you know? like, really, like, like, you know, like the popularity of sort of vegan food and, and what is it, the Impossible Burger and things like this. Like America's taken veganism from India and other cultures and, and kind of turned it into this mass culture. It's really good at sort of doing that. And it's not a bad thing, I don't think. I, think
2: I mean, so if bad. it gets us to reduce our meat consumption, I guess, you know, even if you do the, I'm all, I'm all for doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. You know, whatever gets us to that finish line. I don't care how you get there as long as we get there whatever whatever the there may be you know William you sound like a man after my own heart <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just I'm very I'm very pragmatic like that let's just get where we gotta go
0: well I didn't get you on here just to talk about uh, impossible burgers and in, in Halloween since you are sort of focused on German politics I thought I'd pick your brain a little bit there's a lot going on if you hadn't noticed I <laughs> wanted two
2: things you know Germany suddenly woke up and realized that people care what it thinks you know yeah yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I We'll, we'll get into a bit more, but I thought we'd start off with like an assessment of, of where we are. It's almost been a year since the traffic light coalition took over in Berlin, and uh, I think it was the end of or the middle of December last year. Um, how do you think they've done since forming a government?
2: Well, I feel like that the traffic light coalition is still waiting, like a good German, for the light to turn green to cross the street. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the best way, if you look at not just a poll, but if you look at polls over time if there were to be an election today, we'd be back with the CDU in power. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. As has been noted by a lot of people, Angela Merkel kind of surfed through a, a period of great calm and tranquility. And part of that tranquility was a bit of a false sense of tranquility uh, by avoiding tough uh, decisions and avoiding big things and actually getting Germany into the, many of the problems that it has now, such as its relations with Russia and its dependency on gas, leaving then this big pile <laughs> Of problems for the successor government to kind of pick up on, so they were handed a pretty, uh, pretty raw deal coming in in December, the end of last year, just a, a month or so, or two months, I guess, before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Some will argue that uh, Putin made that decision exactly because Merkel was out of power and mm-hmm. and the new German government would have less sway or less, you know, stand up less to Russia. Who knows? Now, that's pure speculation. But nonetheless, so you know you can have some sympathy for this so-called traffic light, Ampo coalition, mm. given that you know, if you compare it to where we come from, okay, COVID refugee crisis in 2015 2016 it's not like it' was been all uh, rainbows and gumdrops, but more or less quite a period of, of stability, or at least Merkel and Germany under Merkel finding its way to kind of always come out on top of mm. various crises.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, And now, you know, facing some major issues. But that said, you know, you've a government to lead and to make tough decisions or to at least explain to the public why it's making decisions or why certain things are the way they are. And, you know, I think we're seeing the frustration of that not happening in the polls, in especially frustration with the SPD, the Social Democrats that are leading this three-party government, given that they've really dropped quite a bit in continuous polling and the CDU CSU were back up, you know, still below their historic highs, but you know, in the upper 20s, if they're if we can trust the, the polling data. And the greens the greens have kind of been middling along. Uh disconcertingly, of course, the alternative far right, the AFD, has kind of ticked up from 10% to 15% which is disconcerting but not unsurprising when there's crisis and when there's these kinds of problems because extremist parties tend to thrive in environments of chaos and they try to, you know, profit from the uncertainty and from the fear of energy crisis, of inflation, of these kinds of things. But the inability of the German government to really make some quick decisions, you know, I mean, the nuclear power plants was one thing, was I think just a glaring eyesore there where, I mean, they haggled for months, for months, about three nuclear power plants, and I'm not going to put my thumb on the scale of if nuclear power is good or nuclear power is bad. We can have that debate, but just from a political perspective, just the time it took them to make a decision over what yeah. is ultimately a fairly small amount of energy in the large scheme of things, yeah. and then for the chancellor to have to use his Machtwehr, you know, which has almost never happened, if maybe never happened in German history, modern German history anyway. To kind of step into it, the feuding, you know, smaller siblings, the Greens and the FDP to kind of make that decision. It's like, where were you months ago? You know, just make a decision and just go with it. We can debate if it's good or bad or right or wrong, but you are in power. You should act like you're in power. And we see that kind of frustration, I think, reflected in the German public right now.
0: You, You started by sort of making the comparison with Angela Merkel's government and her 15 years in power. And I thought, especially Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, is using strategies that always worked for Merkel, but just don't work for him anymore. So Merkel was sort of known for making last-minute decisions. Yeah, I remember reading articles of praising her ability to to hold her nerve and and make these decisions. And Olaf Scholz does it, and he looks at the, everyone just says he's indecisive. You know. Or even with the the Macford, I think the interesting thing is, I bet you, I'm positive Merkel has done something similar, but she never felt the need to tell everyone about it. And I yeah. think that's part of it as well, is the messaging from Olaf Scholz is really poor. There was that example of the speech he gave where he was asked a question about delivering weapons to Ukraine. And he said, "Oh, we could." I think was was the sort of answer. And then he laughed. And then that was the sort of that was the answer. And then he moved on to the next question. Do you think it's partially just down to the fact that he's he's new in the job, doesn't really know how to communicate, or is is this like a, an ultimate failing of all our shows that he's just an awful communicator, and this is this is where we're at?
2: I saw him on the campaign trail. I covered some events of his. He's he's quite personable. He's down to earth. He He seems to listen to people. He has that quiet, kind of modulated, even tone about him when he answers yeah. questions. He very – he surprises people. I mean, there's been a few instances where he gets really fired up and people kind of take note. Oh, they – Olaf Scholz is yelling. <laughs> that's that's strange, but I don't think it's fair to say he's inexperienced. I mean, he was he was Angela Merkel's vice chancellor for years, finance minister, mayor of Hamburg, uh, a few other positions I'm forgetting along the way. Uh, I mean, this is an establishment figure of German government. I mean, he knows his his way around German politics, so I don't think we can cut him too much slack for being inexperienced. But he ran on a platform of basically being Merkel 2.0. He was either criticized or praised, depending on where you're coming from, for kind of adopting some of Merkel's even physical positions, you know, the the the, the rhombus or the diamond hand, how he yeah, stood. Yeah. Some of his campaign slogans were very much evocative of Merkel's years. Yeah. Um, he got criticized by the CDU for sort of trying to steal that platform. Uh, from their own party, right, different party. But he was saying, I'm the, you know, I'm the heir, I'm the heir apparent to to Angela Merkel, even though I'm from a different party. And that kind of pissed off the CDU a little bit. I could kind of understand why they might be a little peeved by that. You know, I'm not in his brain. I haven't sat down and talked with the man directly. So I I obviously can't speculate about what he's thinking. But just from his public appearances, he comes off at least, as someone who kind of expected to just sort of slide into this chancellor thing, keep leading the fourth largest economy, um, in the world and things kind of being hunky dory and not really having to be thrown into such a spotlight and have this Zeit as he himself framed it with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and really being forced to make some very, very, very difficult decisions. I definitely, I sympathize with the man. I, I wouldn't want to be in his position. I mean, this is, these are dark times. These are difficult times. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, Again, I, I I haven't spoken to him. I don't know how prepared he maybe was for that kind of new context, uh, that Angela Merkel, yes, we had COVID. Yes, we had the uh, refugee, the so-called refugee crisis, or mm-hmm. it was more of a political crisis than anything else in 2015, yeah. 2016. Of course, we had the debt crisis and the euro crisis in 2008, 9, 10. Um, we've kind of lumbered from crisis to crisis. Uh, but Merkel was always is i mean she's very clever she's a very smart very clever politician stateswoman and she was a chancellor at a time of pretty low standards right of George W Bush mm-hmm. of of time of Brexit then of course towards the end of her term with Donald Trump so it was very easy of you know western media liberal media kind of setting the bar very low um, you know, careful not to trip over the bar you set for yourself based on who you're comparing yourself to, either a you know a leadership personality perspective or even from a national perspective. In those years, mm-hmm. of what was happening in America, what was happening in the UK, what was happening in the Western world, and looking to Germany as sort of you know all of these kind of taglines, these these kind of easy things, you know, leader of the free world or new leader of the free world, you know, last you know defender of a liberal democracy, these kinds of things that. We're a bit overblown, a bit overdone. Um, so a lot of things are kind of, you know, it's always compared to what? What was Merkel being compared to? What is Schultz being compared to? Uh, what are the challenges out there that you might look good or bad against? Mm-hmm. And I think you you kind of put your finger on it there. Schultz, at the very least, I think Schultz suffers from a communication problem, from a messaging problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. You can, again, debate policies, good, bad, right, wrong. Can they be better? Uh, should they be different? But I think you can pretty much say that there's been definitely a messaging issue where he seemed a bit out of touch, both in terms of handling of reporters, his handling with the public, where he just doesn't come across that great. Even if what he's trying to actually put out there might be supported by a lot of the public, just not able to kind of get that across to what he's really doing. Just not capable of sort of uh, verbalizing exactly what he needs to say in the moment, maybe.
0: Um, I mean, the coalition partners are obviously in the Greens and the FDP. We'll start with the FDP because they seem to be sure. they're the, they're the smallest of the three, but they do make a lot of noise. Christian Lindner's obviously was was bemoaning and has bemoaned the fact that his party seems to be taking the brunt of uh, the negativity towards the traffic light coalition. Do you think that's fair? Do you think it's it's fair that the FDP? I mean, he, he is the one of the ministers for finance. He has a lot of power, and he he doesn't like to. Uh, make a lot of pronouncements so i mean do you think it's fair that the fdp seem to be electorally getting the, the pie in the face or or do you think it's uh it's just
2: people don't like christian lindner well with great power comes great responsibility and um the fdp definitely punches or has punched above its weight yeah in terms of the kind of the ministries it's been able to lead in terms of the the terms it's been able to dictate so you know, that's, you know, you're left holding the bag. If you're the one who's kind of responsible for the way certain policies go and depending Mm on how the public reacts to that, then you have to also be responsible for kind of any potential backlash. Christian Lindner, yeah, he's disliked by a lot of people, regardless of his politics. I think he's one of Germany's better orators. I think he's able to debate and express his arguments and express his views. He gives very convincing speeches. He uses very flowery rhetoric. It doesn't matter what his politics are. It doesn't matter if they're if you agree or disagree. I just in, I I like listening to him, um, especially in Germany, which is not known for in a constructive, positive sense anyway, mm. uh, for its its public speakers, its orators, and listening especially during the coalition talks when they were still you know dancing around each other and flirting with each other back in you know between the Bundestagswahl in September and their final agreement end of November, early December ish about this time last year. You know, and Lindner was so effusive and positive, talking about a neue fantasie and neue uh, Möglichkeiten. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, you'd listen to, you know, Schultz would take come to the podium and there'd be a joint press conference. Schultz would come to the podium. And as I said, he would speak in that very measured, almost sleepy tone. Habeck would come on and, and give his two cents or, or uh, in his very philosopher kind of big picture lecturing kind of way. Or maybe Annalena Baerbach would would say something. And she's definitely not the best public speaker out there. And then Linda would come on and it would just be a totally different tone, a totally different way of looking at things. And that is why the party was popular in the election in September, mm-hmm. because they do speak to this more Silicon Valley risk-taking, innovative, let's take chances. Let's look at how things could be good, not why they could be bad. Let's look at the optimistic side, not the pessimistic side, which in politics can really work and can really speak to a lot of people, which is why it totally didn't surprise me. I know there was a lot of uh, gasps among uh, many of my colleagues in the media industry uh, that about as many young people under 30s voted for the FDP as they voted for the Greens. Because a lot of people buy into this hook line of sinker narrative of the Greta Thunberg narrative that all young people are obviously climate activists and all young people are worried about climate and therefore they're all green. Well, we know that's not true because young people also want to make money and young people also want to have access, you know, you know, are big into technology and want to have fast internet and want to work for startups and want to to have a dream. (laughs) You know, I, I had a teacher in high school, my, my politics teacher in high school when talking about social security in America, very different context. But he always said, you know, the problem with social security reform is that everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. So everybody wants the perfect policy, but nobody wants to make the sacrifices necessary. I'll always remember that. He always said that. And that's the, basically what the FDP is offering. Vote for us. You'll get to heaven. You won't have to die. You know, We can have climate change policies. We can have technology. We can have innovation. We can have a stronger economy. We can have everything. We don't have to sacrifice anything. We can do it all. Which, of course, when the rubber hits the road and you have energy crisis and you have inflation and you have to decide between coal and gas and oil and nuclear and all mm-hmm. these promises you made on climate change... Things get a lot more difficult than the promises you can make on the campaign trail. I think that's what we're seeing with some problems with the FDP, and that the FDP, Christian Lindner in particular, running the finance ministry, is in a really hard position on this wonderful. You know what is a budget expenditure and what is an investment? Because if it's an investment, it can get around the budget rules, the constitutional budget and debt break rules in the German constitution. And Lindner can go to his people, his supporters, and say, "We've maintained, you know, fiscal responsibility. We've maintained budget responsibility. We're only investing. You know, we're only investing 100 billion euros in the German military. We're only investing, I think, at 60 billion euros in clean energy. We're only investing 200 billion euros." borrowing for this defensive shield uh, to shield people against the energy crisis and their rising gas bills. They're not budgetary expenditures. And that kind of walking that rhetorical line has been a big challenge for Lindner, because of course, at some point, you're going to say, hello, excuse me, you're borrowing a lot of money that you Mm -hmm. said you were uh, totally against. But we're also in a very different world right now, and Germany can afford to borrow it. They have, you know, their credit rating allows them to borrow money. Um, And they, as we all know, Germany is woefully underinvested. And one of the reasons its economy is so strong is because it saves so much of its money. Um, so it's able to have all this money in the piggy bank, which is nice to stare on a piece of paper and say, "Look at all this money I have." But if your bridges are falling apart, and your roads are falling apart, and your schools are falling apart, and your internet's not really working, and your trains aren't running, um, maybe that bottom line you see on your, you know, your balance sheet at the end of the year, maybe that looks less uh, attractive uh, to yeah. have than uh, than it might otherwise be, especially in in these moments of of crisis where people are looking to the government to step in and in a big, big way, in a way that makes COVID almost look like, oh, what was COVID? What was that? Oh.
0: I think that's an excellent point. And again, it sort of goes back to Merkel and I always say to Simon and some other guests that the time under Angela Merkel's chancellorship was was like a just a really big pause button. Like nothing mm. got done. Nothing really <laughs> got achieved. And we just waited. There was moments of flashes of, of brilliance, uh, flashes really of was, light. There were moments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, no singing on the podcast. <laughs> it's not Sing <laughs> along, uh, but the yeah. Sorry, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> otherwise, me singing, everyone will stop listening. Yeah. So it, it was these, these moments of import or, or moments of, of real. Uh, moral decision-making in 2015 being the, the great example. But it, yeah. it does feel like, again, along with, if, if Ukraine was one thing that just didn't get done under Merkel or wasn't really sort of looked at or thought about with any, any level of, of long-term thinking, then, yeah. then the infrastructure is the other thing. But um, we can't spend all this time battering uh, Christian Linder as much as I enjoyed listening.
2: No, no. He's just one small factor in a very large automotive device, well-oiled machine.
0: I don't think it would surprise anyone to say that I voted green in the uh, election because that's pretty much where my politics are at this point. But uh, in parts, I've been very impressed with Annalena Baerbock and and Robert Harbeck. Harbeck was someone that I didn't really know a lot about, but the one thing that did impress me was his speeches in front of... Um, the workers for, for oil companies when he was explaining what was going to gonna, gonna mm-hmm. be happening. And the fact that he stood there for like three hours and talked to them, he, he could have just turned up and done a speech for 45 minutes and then bug it off. But that for me it, it, as a personal position looks like a, a proper leader, you know, someone who's willing to to go the distance and, and get people to understand through not red, just rhetoric, but, but actually speaking to them. But he's got this sort of weird office that's been created almost for him, in the, uh, he's the Bundesminister for Wirtschaft and Klimaschutz, um, which is sort of a combination of things. So we've got like almost like two finance ministers, like a counterweight in the FDP, (laughs) Christian Lindner and and, and Harbeck. Harbeck's certainly more than Annalena Baerbock has faced a lot more criticism. How do you think the Greens have been doing?
2: I mean, that's very much a matter of perspective, right? If you're on the left, you see the Greens as being a neoliberal sellout that's completely sold all their values down the river. (laughs) And they've just become a major party looking to profit off of, you know, left and right, whatever (laughs) they can. Um, Or you can look at them as a very pragmatic party that has, you know, unlike the SPD and unlike, actually unlike any other party, has had to take a very hard look at their values and has had to make a lot of difficult choices, a lot of difficult compromises given the world around them. Um, And that's, I think, to be commended, in certain ways, to be commended um, for a party to be able to do that. I mean, As your listeners know, this is an anti-nuclear party that is now reluctantly on board with some semblance, some limited extension of nuclear power. The very thing that they fought tooth and nail to phase out, they are now, a decade later, (laughs) responsible for... In a very limited way, extending.
0: A real twist. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
2: Again, we can argue all the non-decisions that weren't made over that last decade that has put us in this position, um, which the Greens are by and large not responsible for because they were not in power, um, at least at a federal level. All same thing with the weapons deliveries. I mean, if you just remember, just think about the the study and contrasts here. Robert Habeck, I'm getting my years mixed up, but I want to say it was 2021, May 2021. But don't I might I might between COVID and and the war, and I'm totally lost track of all kinds of time. But I'm pretty sure spring 2021, Habeck went to Ukraine and he said we should deliver weapons. And everybody lost their minds that you know this you know traditionally pacifist or at least you know not anti militaristic party you know, their leader is saying, we need to arm Ukraine. And he had to quickly, quickly walk that back and say, oh, I just meant defensive weapons or we should just give them, you know, mine detecting devices. I didn't mm-hmm. really mean, you know, I, uh, and, you know, and where are we a year, year and a half later? Uh, we're, we're looking to give them heavy tanks and and yeah. uh, anti-aircraft batteries and all kinds of, uh, of huge, major, massive weapons systems. Mm-hmm. And the Greens are the, a forefront of that yeah, that I think there's something, again, regardless of the specific policies, I think there's something to be commended for a party to to actually change its ways, to have a serious debate within itself and still be a party. But again, if you're looking, like I said, you can look from a very different perspective, and there's a lot of people who are very unhappy with the greens.
0: Not not as unhappy as with the FTP though. I mean, look no, at the polls. no,
2: no, not as with the FTP. I, but also, the FTP is uh they have been in and out of government. They like the Greens have had a pretty solid upward trajectory oh. since over. They've been clawing their way into power more and more over the decades. The the tag
0: was reasonable and quite fair. And They seemed very pragmatic when he was asking yes. them to make decisions on nuclear power. They were like behind, and even in the the recent elections in the in was it in um i forget I forget there's been a, a couple of local elections or state yeah. elections recently the polls seem to, they seem to be missing all the all the heat that that's hitting
2: yeah the SPD. And- they've been getting more heat recently and you see that reflected in the polls nationally habeck mm-hmm. is definitely off of his uh praised you know holy glorified place that he was in the spring and summer where he was making all of these these kind of this like whistle stop tour. And as you were saying, it's having these long explanation, kind of listening sessions, town hall kind of meetings, where he got a lot of credit for, again, as I said, who do you compare yourself to? Hobbeck was, Schultz was getting compared to Hobbeck. Schultz was kind of not out there and really not taking control of things. Hobbeck mm-hmm. was explaining to people, um, listening to them, empathizing with them, but still sticking to the policy and saying, look, I know this is hard, but we have to do this for X, Y, and Z. He's come down off of that a little bit, especially the nuclear power debate. He did not come off looking good on that. As I said, it just no, took not all. it just took forever to make this seemingly very small decision based on all the other huge decisions that are out there to make right now and all the huge challenges and a very uncertain winter that we all are, you know, going into now. It mm-hmm. just seemed like such a of all the decisions to get hung up on. You know, I found it very interesting that it took no time uh, for the government to decide on, you know, restarting coal and expanding mm-hmm. gas projects and making all these new deals on gas. But the nuclear thing is just such a, a third rail here in Germany. I found that very, the contrast there, I found that very interesting.
0: But I was surprised that there was so much opprobrium dished out for them taking so long, because I was like, isn't that the German dynamic? Everything mm-hmm. takes too long. Like everything, every decision takes ages, and we have to talk about it in the finest of details. And, yeah. and so I was kind of surprised that, People got so upset about, I guess it's the fear of, of what's coming next. You've got the yeah. combination of the desire to talk about everything and fear of the
2: future, the two yeah. sort of two, two cornerstones of German
0: <laughs> German culture, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, for, for me, it was not so much how long it took, but just, again, what are you comparing to? In comparison to mm-hmm. everything else on their plate, it just seemed that the nuclear question, three nuclear power plants... I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's not a huge addition to the grid here in Germany. No. Um, it just seemed compared to so many other things they had to decide on. If the rumors are true, sort of the back room, backstory off the record, you know, stories are true about the Zeitenwende speech. Schultz just kind of came up with that 100 billion euros on his own, like overnight, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. were in the few days between Russia's invasion on the 24th of February and his speech that Sunday. I think that was the 27th. Uh, that Schultz apparently just kind of came up with it and just yeah, loaded yeah. it out. It, we'll the yeah, yeah, yeah. And like maybe kind of checked with Lindner. Hey, Lindner, can you look in your wallet? Do we have that? Can we like? <laughs> is your credit card still valid? Yeah, it is yeah. cool. All right, hundred billion euros. So for me as a journalist, there are no absolutes, right? For me, it's always in comparison to what, relative to what. And so for me, the nuclear debate that I just found kind of sad and laughable was just guys, there's so much else going on right now. Can you just make a decision on this and then talk about so much else? And not just within Germany, but also within the EU. And obviously the ongoing situation with Ukraine, like all the sanctions, the weapons deliveries, the money, the the refugees. I mean, so, so, so much. I mean, I, I, I've i lost track of how many fill-in-the-blank greatest crisis since World War II we've now been through. Like I, I've i lost track of it. We're on six or something now. I think. Yeah, we're <laughs> like on the sixth, Largest crisis since World War II, which was something that, you know, until COVID, maybe the refugee uh, situation in 2015, but until that, like, the assumption was we would never hear that ever again. That would just mm. that was such a, a singular time in human history, just or European history at least. We would never hear that again, and now we've heard it like six times in four years or something like that. But he, you know, here we are. So it's it's, it's it's nice living in interesting times, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when I, when I was a kid, you know, growing up in the growing up in the nineteen nineties, like the post everything nineteen nineties, where you know neoliberalism won and capitalism won, and history is over, uh, which is taking that quote out of context a little bit. Uh, or at least as it was originally intended. But this like post everything 90s until 9-11, I was like, nothing exciting happens. You know, there's nothing going on. <laughs> and it's like, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know, no news yeah, is good, good news. Yeah. And, you know, every every time you think, you know, the world is falling apart, you just look back, you're like, well, that was okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, that's my, that's certainly, like, I had, I, we, we we're a similar age, and I, and I grew up later through the 90s, and I, I do remember it just being quite boring, but also very yeah. optimistic. There was a lot of hope, and and it, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Yeah,
2: yet. and of course, that hope, I mean, that hope and, and, and kind of just thinking that, the, that the, the wheels were spinning themselves led to a lot of the turbulence of then the of early knots, because we realized, oh, we actually do need to take care of our economy, we do need to keep a check on the banks, and we do need to keep a check on runaway industry and technology and all the... Things. Oops.
0: Your capitalism isn't as good as everyone said it was. What?
2: <laughs> Maybe de- you know, democratic government actually plays a role here in keeping a check on you know fairness and <laughs> spread of the love, spread of the resources, spread of the wealth. Yeah. yeah. So those two things are not uh, mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they're very much uh, you know. Uh, connected
0: yeah well we've talked a lot about politics so I'll, let's move on to sort of happier topics so i'm gonna are you I'm not happy does politics some... not make you happy i mean oh i mean it makes me it makes me happy but at the same time it makes me incredibly <laughs> depressed this so. is why this <laughs> is why
2: people love hanging out with me you know, i'm a joy
0: <laughs> I, know, I mean, it's one of those things I love talking about and uh, learning about German politics. I mean, British politics—it's more of a—I wouldn't say second nature, but you understand it more inherently. Mm. Than it's, it's something you've grown up with, and something maybe you've learned about. Of course, of course. I'm sort of learning on the job when it comes to German politics. There's a lot to learn. It does sometimes give me a headache because there's a lack of humor about mm. about, about German politics. Like you, you can't, like Britain is often accused of having too much humor in its politics, and that's. I think that's probably true. I just laugh at it and hope it goes away. Yeah. Whereas German politics, there's no laughing. There's no jokes in the Bundestag. Like, and yeah. if there are, they're like,
2: yeah. <laughs> so- I mean, when they when they introduced the equivalent of you know PMQs in in the Bundestag, and we're just like, I'm of course from an outsider. I'm 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 mm-hmm. not from the United Kingdom, but I've watched with great entertainment, many, many PMQs. And, uh, you know, when they introduced that with Merkel, like we're going to, you know, we're going to have a chance to grill Merkel, just like, you know, yeah. parliament in the UK grills the Prime. I'm like, guys, this is, this is not going to happen.
0: But it's like, you've never watched PMQs like where they said that. I was like, yeah, they don't really, they, they're basically just non-answers. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> don't know?
2: really, they don't really get it. And of course, Merkel was a, just brilliant at, at kind of slipping out of answering questions directly. And, and her, her very rhetorical style was excellent because she would speak in these un- ending these just unending yeah. clauses so many commas <laughs> so many commas and you know for me I often would have to translate her Mm. And I would intuitively know what she was saying. She, she was a very good speaker and she would speak. I would it's like, oh yeah, of course. That's what you said. Okay. But now try translating that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, where do I begin? Where does this period end? Where does this sentence yeah. end? I can't have 16 commas in this paragraph
0: yeah. and this paragraph cannot be one sentence. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> okay.
2: Uh, das und das und das und das.
0: das. Okay. Yeah. Well, here we are. Well, I'm going to throw some, uh, some, some sort of culture questions and, and so forth we uh we often talk about about beer on the podcast so i'm gonna ask what your favorite beer is like in the world no just out of german beers and chur- like you're in berlin and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm buying and obviously um
2: oh boy that, yeah. that sucks that sucks for you because you have got the best beer in the world right uh, and in the world <laughs> would be, maybe in maybe in germany maybe maybe oh, yeah. and
0: yeah i think i think i said in the world uh, no. And <laughs> so <laughs> what would you say i mean if you're going out and like like that's not just, it doesn't have to be a German mm. beer necessarily, but what's the, the sort of beer preference for you in a city like Berlin?
2: Well, first of all, I should say that one of my first observations coming to Germany, specifically Berlin, many years ago, and I will exempt Bavarian beer from, from what I'm about to say, is I find that German beer is a great metaphor for Germany as a whole, in that uh, German beer, by and large, is always the same. It's incredibly uniform. It's very conservative. No one takes any chances with it. You know exactly what you're going to get. You know exactly what you can expect. It's never great. It's never bad. It's just okay. It's cheap. Uh, and it's plentiful. Um,
0: I'm glad you accepted Bavaria from that one because I could just hear Franken screaming
2: from here. You know, I've had a lot of delicious, you know, local beers. That's the yeah. thing. A lot of local beers, you know, mm. beers that come out of monasteries that have been being made for a thousand years, things mm. that you can't really get on a mass market. You know, if you're in a small town somewhere, especially in Bavaria, but not only Bavaria, then mm. it can be very good or interesting. But mass produced German beer is. Still better than mass-produced American beer, of course, but mm-hmm. um, not huge difference. Like, it's it's all just a thousand kinds of pills, yeah. uh, which I don't think tastes like much. Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted water, I'd be happy to just drink water.
0: No, but I think uh, you're right about lack of imagination, for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I mean, I would say, like, your, your Bexes and your Walsh Diners are like like, when you've drank, like, a solid – definitely a Bavarian beer or a Kolsch or something like that or like I do love a Kolsch mm. and, and you just tried some of the, the best beers in each state you're like oh god Betts oh is- yeah
2: I mean it's if it's mass I mean that's like most things right this is why McDonald's sucks right Ma- mass produced stuff is uh mm. you know it's it's not going to be the greatest thing um they're making the the cheapest possible product with the cheapest possible ingredients so uh, yeah, I, I don't I think we can fault mass produced German beer specifically for that. The shame about Berlin is Berlin used to be a massive brewing industry. I mean, I, I, Mm. someone should fact check me, but I think before the war, there's something like 80 breweries in the city. Mm -hmm. And even today, if you go around a lot of old factories used to be breweries, Um, even to this day, there's a lot of still unoccupied space that kind of just never got its act together since the fall of the wall and a lot of old breweries. Yeah. And it's a shame that that, Culture that history, with a big caveat I'm about to say, but for a long time was not really there, and it really was just Astra and Berliner Pilsner and Kindle, which just I'll Mm -hmm. leave it at that. Um, But recently, I mean, it's very nice to see that there is a new spirit of brewing, especially in Berlin, that there is an openness to the Belgian styles, to the British styles, uh, to the American microbrew craft brew kind of scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I obviously my bias is IPA, my bias is stout and porters and those kinds of things, heavy beers, strong beers. I want things, and this goes with everything. I mean, I want things to taste like stuff. I want things to taste, I want to be hit in the face with whatever I'm in me. So that's why pills just doesn't do it for me. You know, for me, das Schmeckt is one of my favorite German-like expressions (laughs) because it's like, it tastes... It's a, yeah, exactly. It's good, schlecht, like, I don't know, like it, it tastes. Oh, okay. It tastes something. <laughs> again, again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, keeping that bar very low, careful not to trip over it. So, and it's nice to see that um, it's not just any, it was for a while, but it's nice to see in Berlin that it's not just kind of this American or Anglo kind of gentrified newcomer setting up shop that's just like bringing in their thing and just kind of wiping out, you know, a local scene or a local culture that there are now German, you know, born and bred native German breweries, German brewers who are starting to adopt uh, new styles or trying out new things. And still totally for everyone, all all the conservative German purists out there still fully compatible with the Reinheitsgebot. Um, IPA is by and large, you know, just hops and barley and malt and water and you know, fulfills that mythical Reinheitsgebot, the the purity laws for beer, and that's that's been nice to see. That I, because uh, as much as I like IPA and as much as I, I like those more non-German styles, I don't I don't want to be I don't want Berlin to be San Francisco where suddenly it's thirteen euros for a quadruple IPA. Like I don't I don't want that.
0: Yeah, and uh, that's what I do not like about being in the U.S. is they have lots of like really interesting intrad- like blueberry Weizen or something like that. Yeah, like, this is great, but I'm not paying twenty dollars a beer you know it's yeah. just a bit too much the only problem I have with the sort of IPA culture as it were especially down here is the the marketing that that goes with it is is, mm-hmm. is very much of that like, like I remember seeing someone that was promoting a, a beer in Nuremberg and say like, oh this is the first the first craft IPA or is it the first craft brewery in Nuremberg and I'm like mate like you're in Franconia, they're all craft breweries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, like, come on <laughs> these these
2: these words are meaningless. I mean, this is just the in, this is just the Instagramification of 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 yeah, kind of yeah. of kind exactly. of culture everywhere, which is sad to see. Um,
0: but you still haven't made a decision. You haven't told me what your favorite beer is. So. Oh, oh. <laughs>
2: um, I, I'm actually my favorite beer is an Estonian beer, uh, Polaya I'm I'm definitely butchering the name because Estonian <laughs> is not my forte. But I was in Tallinn a few years ago. And uh, went to a restaurant, and there was a coconut stout on the menu from a local brewery, uh, Polaya. Polaya. I'm definitely. I'm, I apologize to the brewing brewery company. I'm absolutely butchering butchering the name. And it was just one of the most delicious beers I have ever had. Um, and of course, there's a, a beer for every uh, every season, every taste. It, it very much it's not just the beer; it's also the mood you're in, where you're at, yeah, the course. time of day, the time of season. You know who you're with. It's. It, it all always kind of uh, makes a difference. Also, here in Berlin, Heiden Peters does great, I think, does great beer. And they're a local German brewery here in Magdaleneun, where they're brewing out of. They've done great stuff. Um, just a solid IPA kind of thing. So it's a privilege to be spoiled enough to say that, like, I don't have to look hard now for beer that I like.
0: Um, okay. We've got uh, a favorite beer. What about a favorite bit of uh, German culture? Is there one aspect or something that maybe you watch on TV or an artwork or maybe a bit of Goethe poetry or something?
2: <laughs> Germany plays somewhat of a role in, in in developing Western civilization as we know it. Just so a bit, there, a there's, a, there's a few things to appreciate about Germany's cultural cultural uh, contributions mm. um, on some of the lower brow, more everyday kind of things. I'm not a huge sweets fan. I don't eat. I'm more much more savory than sweets. But I think Kaffee Kuchen is just a fantastic yeah idea it's it's yeah. kind of i guess it's the german equivalent of of traditional british tea sort of afternoon tea i guess oh
0: don't say that i said that I, once and got on earful i have wrote a blog about saying exactly that comparison that there oh, isn't boy. that much difference in the way it is totally different okay <laughs> like, you okay. right hey, hey, tea, it's, tea it's, not coffee yeah, yeah um, no but i agree yeah i think there is that that sort of mid-afternoon take a break sit down cup of coffee yeah but being you know, yeah shtick yeah
2: and, and especially in the winter, as we were saying, you know, it gets dark now. It's kind of like a nice, cozy thing. I, I mean, even, even if I'm not, sometimes I'm not personally always into it, but I, mm-hmm. objectively, I can just appreciate that that frame of mind. Uh, one of my first interactions with Kaffee Kuchen, you know, because coffee cake, afternoon coffee cake culture, mm-hmm. was, um, again, very new to Germany, didn't really know anything, was with my friend who was also American, but married to a, an East German, Eastern German And we went to one of her family's birthday parties, which is like way out in the sticks in, where was I back then? In Meck were we, I want to say. And um, we got there like late in the afternoon and they were all having coffee and cake. And, you know, coming from America at a birthday party, coffee, cake is kind of what is the last thing you have. Mm. And uh, I was like, oh, I guess we, And in my mind, I was like, oh, I guess we missed the party. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no, you just. of course we were. Much to my surprise, the party then went on for like ten more hours until the early hours of the the night. <laughs> Do you have a favorite cake then? Oh, do I have favorite cake? I'm, I, 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 I can tell you what I don't like, like. I'm not big into sweets. I'm not into the, like, the torta thing. I'm not into, like, these, mm-hmm. like, very gelatinous, yeah, fruity, jelly kind of things. I like very simple cakes, you know, chocolate, like a very simple chocolate cake, like dark, mm-hmm. dark, rich chocolate cake. I'm really, I'm into that, that kind of stuff. You do well in Vienna. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, well, they're all, they also have a lot of that, like, very heavy frosting kind of stuff yeah. that I'm not really into, but... Um,
0: and uh, finally... Uh, your, have you got a favorite German word?
2: Mm, I mean, German has. I was thinking about this. Or try. I, I. 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 Whenever I'm put on the spot, I can never think of my my favorite German words because there's so many wonderful ones. Mm. I feel like what German lacks in in sort of the cliche, poetic, romantic sort of prettiness that other languages, other romantic romance languages, get credit for. I think it makes up for in being very pragmatic and very to the point. And actually, and and as a written language, I think German is a really, really lovely written language. There's a certain Mm -hmm. rhythm to it. There's a certain pattern to it. Uh, Once you crack that, it's very mathematical in a way. Once you crack the code, crack that rhythm, that pattern, uh, you -hmm. you kind of start to unpack the language. Uh, But Verschlimmbesserung is a fantastic word. Um, You know, like making things, you know, when you... When you when you try so hard to make something better that it, it's actually worse. You make,
0: you make it worse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For yeah.
2: schlimmbesserung is fantastic, um, and in the, anyone who's in the creative or media world like I am, that is often the case because you deal with editors and you go through an editing process, and despite best intentions, sometimes the end results, the end a, end resultat, There I am with my danglish. End result. End result. End, <laughs> end, end resultat is also a great. Is also a good word. A tolles endresult ja. ein tolles endresultat.
0: Um, oh yeah, I understand that. That's yeah. like yeah. But Fischling it just sounds, it just it just sounds exactly what it is, right? Yeah. You know I, mean? I love that about German it, the, the the sort of it's on the money every time. There's a lot of
2: German words that really they really sound like what they mean. Uh mm. is one of them. My favorite in the moment is uh, Spaßbremse is one of Oh Spaßbremse is great. Okay. I've actually just recently started a list of compiling a list of German words that make no sense. Mm. So like Einstellen. Has mm-hmm. a thousand yeah. different meanings that can be totally yeah. contradictory.
0: Hundred, uh, yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> you know, Einstein,
2: you can Einstein, you, you Einstein in a court case if you throw the case out of court. Uh, uh, Einstein can be to hire somebody. It could be to yeah. like uh, make a code in a lock. Um, demutisch, demutisch is is humble and it's mm-hmm. to humiliate. I think that says a lot about the German psyche: that humble <laughs> humility and yeah, humiliation. Yeah. Are connected.
0: Yeah. I do like Schuld as well because it's like g- g- debt and guilt. Oh, yeah. It? Schuld, like, Schulden yeah.
2: is also great. The, that's yeah. a, that says also a lot about the German psyche that debt and, and guilt mm. are very much connected. Absolutely. I love the fact that Geil means horny, but it's totally an acceptable word to say in front of your grandmother just to mean like that was cool.
0: I mean, it wasn't when I first arrived. I remember it was one of those true it's of use, and I said And I said it I said it in polite company and everyone like there's a deep intake of breath. And then I was walking to work and the, the building that I, my, my office is, is in has a massive advertising holding on the front that just that has um Augsburg is guile. And I was <laughs> like, Oh, I guess we're I guess we're doing this now. I see. Okay. I guess so, I guess
2: Lidl i was it I always get Lidl, Lidl or Aldi. I, I honestly they're pretty much the same thing to me. Um they're they 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 had had controversial opinion. The- <laughs> they had the Geitzes Geil uh, advertisement yeah. with with Sven, wasn't it? Sven Bergling. No, Edeka,
0: I think that was right.
2: Yeah. Anyway, um, I think they're the ones that might have really pushed it over the edge in German culture. Because I also I also remember when I came here many years ago and was first learning German. I was very uncertain if I could use Geil as mm-hmm. to mean cool. Like I didn't want to come off. I didn't want to make any have any mis, <laughs> mis- uh, interpretations <laughs> in, in mixed company in a social I setting. To tell you either. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. I didn't want. To- to come <laughs> off uh, in any inappropriate way with anyone in accidentally yeah, um absolutely. but i think i think that commercial really might have done a geitzist guy and they have they had that was great
0: it, was, it, was that the one where he's singing super Geil? i don't want to have got it wrong but like yeah, it whole, yeah, yeah it was a he was Edica,
2: yeah. i think it was Edica. It, we can youtube it it's definitely on there um yeah, so i mean the, the audience is already shouting into their uh into their phones like
0: you idiots <laughs> i'm not a culture i'm not a culture journalist all right i'm not <laughs> i mean i'm not a culture journalist but i just put i just make pronouncements about culture all the time that's my
2: beef i will give one shout out when we're talking about words um anyone who's interested in the german language i think should absolutely i'm not being paid for this i think they should absolutely sign up for the duden newsletter
0: oh right yeah that's a good that's a good show
2: the duden being of course germany's official dictionary they have this fantastic newsletter maybe once a month it's not it's not overwhelming it won't overwhelm the thousand other newsletters you get and they just have really interesting articles about why the german language is the way it is and it's it's not meant for you know foreign speakers you know people learning the language it's meant for native german speakers and it's also nice if you are a non native speaker of german it's uh, it's an it's a nice to see that there'll be topics that come up that you might think were only questions for non native speakers and you realize oh germans also don't really know these things about their language so I can recommend that it's it's a really interesting. It's about the history and the culture and how words came to be. And I think it's very anyone who's interested in language and, and knows a bit of German. I can recommend reading that from time to time.
0: Well, that was uh, well, William. That was excellent. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for joining me for this. Uh, this this, uh, this hours flew by. It was, it was really, a really good. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. It thank pleasure. you very much for coming on, and we'll uh, we'll have to have you back.
2: Very, anytime very uh, i'll probably still be in my so home office so um, i don't know if is so i don't know if i don't know how to decline,
0: uh, how oh, to decline man. home you, office that's of my pay grade yeah, i don't, I don't know. know if it's if it's D
2: das home office kind of just say
0: das and hope for the best yeah just das bureau
2: so there we go
1: what's that what's that in the background
2: what is I don't it know, man what is it what, what is, is it? it tell me what it is <laughs>
0: it's a Boris Becker update that's what it is <laughs> yes another boris becker update oh this one's a request as well i think pretty much yeah shout out to beth (laughs) (laughs) who requested a bit of the old boris becker update what's boris becker been up to simon well i mean obviously we know he's not been up to a huge
1: amount because he is still in prison uh, in the uk the guardian are keeping us abreast of his of his doings and the headline we have this time round is slimmed down boris beckham mm, reportedly teaching yoga in prison so yeah he's at uh, Huntercombe prison which we mentioned before and now he has lost a stone uh, what's a stone in German I don't I don't even know anymore oh
0: god I, I have no
1: idea it is 6.35 kilograms that's quite good that that's a good that's a good wap to have lost but it's made me realise that I'm aiming currently to lose two stone <laughs> which, 12 <laughs> kilos seem like a, a sensible amount but two stone that's that's a lot of weight Oh, God, what have I got myself into? I need Boris teaching me yoga. Um, How has he managed to lose weight then? So, yeah, he's been, uh, he's been training regularly uh, in the prison fitness studio. Uh, so I'm sure that will upset the right-wing tabloids who have like, fucking fitness studio. And he's given up alcohol because that's banned.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't get the image of Boris Becker making prison hooch in the toilet. You know, I can't really see that. That being something that he would get up to, but he's
1: making a lovely hefeweizen <laughs> with,
0: with, with the
1: yeast he's collected from his fellow inmates. <gasps> Ooh, um, there's so many questions I don't want answered. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so apparently he's working as an uh, as an assistant uh, alongside the prison coach for fitness and psychology. I'm not sure how much of the psychology, but of course, yeah, former world number one tennis champion. I'm sure he can mm. give some some interesting mantras uh, for the uh, for the inmates. And he's teaching, apparently, 45 uh, fellow inmates uh, in fitness, nutrition, and also crisis management. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to come in useful, right? Yeah. Especially in prison. Yeah. I wonder if he was doing this whilst he was being read the verdict <laughs> <laughs> Full on Becker crisis management. And yet, the prison's got a sport complex, apparently, and also a climbing wall, and I mean obviously I think it's great that they're getting fitness in in the kind of way they are. But of all the things to offer prisoners, climbing practice kind of <laughs> seems seem a bit odd. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive. Like have these prison officers not seen any movie about prison escapes? It's either digging or climbing. And I was going
0: to say, there's another class like how to dig a hole really well. (laughs) This is how you dig a trench with your hands. (laughs) Apparently, one of the prisoners has described it as a
1: special type of yoga and meditation. In my head, I'm hoping that they're all in like tennis gear, like high cut white shorts, like (laughs) like, forehand, backhand, forehand, backhand, Uh, something like that. That's what I'm hoping he's doing anyway. But. Until he gets out, we're not going to find out. I'm sure there'll be DVDs available, <laughs> How to Quit Alcohol and Lose a Kilo, um, with Boris de Becker, Yoga Meister.
0: Yeah, you can assume that there's definitely some kind of self-help book in the making. My Prison Diet or My Prison Health Regime. It's got the Christmas bestseller list written all over it. The only issue he, of course,
1: will have is he has debts to pay. So I imagine any best selling book, the proceeds will be taken from him. So I think we're probably going to see a book called uh, "Chorus Kecker Does Yoga." <laughs> <laughs> is this you Boris? No,
0: no, it's not me. <laughs> Hopefully, he wouldn't be that daft. I mean, sure, he's uh, he's understood understood the uh, the long arm of the uh, of the tax office will come find him somewhere for sure. But yeah, it, I mean, it's good. It seems like he's in a good good healthy position. I, I think this is all we could have hoped for a few months ago when we learned of his imprisonment. I feel like he sounds like he's moving towards a more positive place. It'll be all that crisis management that he's that he's uh, so skilled in.
1: Yeah, I mean, you kind of assume a lot of celebrities will be targeted in these kind of environments, and it seems that he's thriving, uh, which is which is wonderful. Yeah, good on you, Boris. Well done. Yeah, well done, Boris. Keep it up. We know you're listening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That brings us to the end of the show. We're we'll off to go stretch out our cheese with Boris Becker. I mean, um, uh, chorus Kecker. I just want to say thank you again to William Noah Glucroft, who joined us for this week's episode. Uh, also, uh, just to remind you, if you want to hear more or read some of the work that uh, William has done, you can find him on his Substack, which is called The Schland, and you can find that at schland.substack.
1: .com. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes? It only takes a minute and really, really helps us out. We're also still starving for Spotify stars, so chuck some of them lovely things our way. Nom, 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 nom. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag Home or lowercase on Twitter or Instagram. And if you feel so inclined, you can also support the podcast by going to ko-fi.com forward slash Home and contributing to give us all the yoga textbooks we need to keep up with hair keckers
0: rigid system of course um we're still sitting about 33 stars on spotify that's great we've also got um a little bit of a social media update we've finally decided to turn up in 2007 i guess we've got a facebook page now facebook.com slash decades from home you can find us on there yeah hoping to build another community on a different social media platform so if you are using facebook you can find us we'll be posting stuff on there um and trying to sort of uh, promote it for the podcast as much as possible but also um, find another way of engaging with you you lovely lovely listeners as ever if you have any questions feedback or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover you can tweet simon on at decades from home and you can tweet me at 40 german you can also get us on decades at gmail.com if you have time take a look at 40 german.com weekly articles are up every saturday all that's left to say is thanks and put some next amount just ciao cacao